0: Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, the podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. With North Korea dominating headlines coming out of Asia and the Pacific region, it's easy to forget that the Korean Peninsula is located in Northeast Asia. But Southeast Asia is a vast area that encompasses millions of people in numerous countries and vital maritime areas. How should we think about Southeast Asia, its economic and security issues, relations among its nations? and with the United States. Here to offer us his expertise and insights into this vital region is Brookings Senior Fellow Jonathan Stromseth. He is the Lee Kuan Yew Chair in Southeast Asian Studies in the Center for East Asia Policy Studies here at Brookings. He also holds a joint appointment with the John L. Thornton China Center at Brookings. He was a member of the State Department's Policy Planning Staff from 2014 to 2017 advising the department's leadership on China, Southeast Asia, and East Asian and Pacific affairs. Prior to that, his extensive experience in Asia includes being the Asia Foundation's country representative to China and to Vietnam. Stay tuned in this episode to hear a sample of an interview I'll be publishing in May about research on disparities in school discipline. And then after the interview, David Wessel puts the current federal budget deficit talk in context in another edition of Wessel's Economic Update. You can follow the Brookings Podcast Network on Twitter, at Policy Podcasts, to get the latest information about all of our shows. And now, on with the interview. Jonathan, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Fred. So, we're talking today about Southeast Asia, and something that I always like to start off with in these kind of discussions is, what is your origin story? How did you become interested in Southeast Asia?
1: Well, my family comes from the academic world, and so I was very fortunate as a young boy, about nine years old to accompany my family on a study abroad program from St. Olaf College in Minnesota and an extended sabbatical also of my father to both Northeast Asia and Southeast Asia. And it ended with three or four months in Chiang Mai, Thailand, in Northern Thailand. And I was really, really taken by the Buddhist temples, the rice fields, of course, the beaches uh, as a young kid. And I was really just hooked. Eventually, this led to more visits to the region as a student myself, a college student. I worked on a U.N. election in Cambodia in the 90s. Also, I had a chance to have a fellowship after college to Singapore. And eventually, as you mentioned, in the setup, I became the Asia Foundation country representative to both Vietnam and later to China. So I have a kind of diverse background in the sense that I've been a development practitioner, I've been a scholar, and also a policy planner at the State Department. And taking all that together, I'm really uh, happy to be here at Brookings and sort of let all of this percolate. I would also note one other kind of unique aspect of my background is that I've lived in China for about nine or 10 years of my life. And so I really am very interested in the sort of interaction and evolving relationship between China and Southeast Asia. And what are the policy implications for the United States in particular? Okay. Well, let's define for our listeners what Southeast
0: Asia is. I mean, I think we have a sense that Northeast Asia includes Japan and the Koreas and China, but let's think about how do you define Southeast Asia?
1: Well, Southeast Asia is very, very diverse set of 11 countries, and they range from the vibrant city-states uh, like Singapore to very large ancient kingdoms like Thailand, which also have had great economic success over the years. Incredible diversity of language, ethnicity, religion, population, for instance, Indonesia is the world's fourth largest nation by population with over 260 million people. It's also the third largest democracy and the largest Muslim-majority country. Vietnam is pushing 100 million people now. The Philippines is already over 100 million. Of course, you've got smaller states like Laos with six or seven million people, and Cambodia, for instance, which I think is at about 16 million now. So it really is a diverse region, and. One sort of acronym we often hear when we talk about Southeast Asia is ASEAN, or the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, which was established in 1967 originally with five members, and now it's extended to 10. And taken together, ASEAN countries boast the third largest population in the world at about 630 million. It's also the third largest economy in Asia and the fifth in the world with a GDP of 2.4 trillion dollars and the fourth largest export region in the world. And I think from a U.S. perspective, ASEAN is the top destination for U.S. investment in Asia as well. So should we include India in the Southeast Asia region, or is India its own section? India is in South Asia, as we think of it. But there's increasing interaction between India and Southeast Asia and a long, long historical and cultural relationship that goes way back.
0: In these kind of conversations about different places around the world, I like to try to focus on the places themselves without reference to U.S. policy toward them. We'll get into that later. So let's stick with thinking about how these 11 countries of Southeast Asia interact with each other. You mentioned ASEAN. What other ways are they tied together economically,
1: culturally maybe, or in terms of security? Well, ASEAN itself is an interesting institution, and it's sort of one of those cup-half-full, cup-half-empty kind of debates. It's often noted that since ASEAN was established, although there are territorial disputes and other frictions among ASEAN countries, as there would be in any region, there have been low-level disagreements and so on, but there's not been outright conflict. So there has been, I think, a sense of community that's been established, at least at the elite level. Some say it hasn't really trickled down more to the broader populations the establishment of institutions that reinforce that. And also, what's often talked about in the ASEAN context is its ability to sort of engage great powers, not just the United States and China, but also India, Japan, the EU, and so on. Often, one says that ASEAN helps these 10 countries punch above their weight. In other words, they have more power and international influence collectively than they would as individual states. Within the region, Indonesia kind of stands out. It's often been the leader of ASEAN over the years. Of late in recent years, some feel that maybe it hasn't seized that role as much under President Jokowi in Indonesia as he has a very much a domestic economic reform focus. But that might be changing as well.
0: So Jonathan, just a minute ago, you mentioned that ASEAN has 10 countries, but there are 11 countries in the Southeast Asia region. Can you address that real quick?
1: Yes, so ASEAN is made up of 10 countries in Southeast Asia, originally five when it was established in 1967, and then gradually expanded to 10. But there's also Timor-Leste in Southeast Asia, so altogether there's 11 countries in the region.
0: What are some of the tensions within the ASEAN nations, within this region?
1: Well, frankly speaking, a number of tensions are developing among the Southeast Asian countries in part because of China's dramatic rise in the last few years. And overwhelmingly, I think the media coverage focuses on the South China Sea disputes. The
0: islands that China is building something there, military bases or something.
1: Right, and there are four ASEAN claimants to these maritime waters. The two that we hear most about is Vietnam and the Philippines, but also Malaysia and Brunei. And so China, some would say, has been sort of engaging in gray zone or salami slicing tactics with land reclamation and militarization of reefs and rocks and low tide features and so on. And by salami slicing, I think the analogy means they take a little bit at a time without ever kind of provoking a response or triggering an outright conflict among the other claimants or perhaps their supporters. But eventually the concern is they'll have de facto control over the long term. And how to deal with this while these countries have very strong and nationalistic even concerns and manifestations over their claims to these islands? While China is at the same time growing so strong economically in the region, it has dominant trade relationships with these countries. It is offering extensive foreign aid and infrastructure investment, which many of these countries really need. And so it's kind of a balancing act between wanting to have courting Chinese investment and having a stable Economic relationship with China and hopefully one that's more favorable to them over time, but at the same time, standing up for their territorial issues. Now, there has been, especially in the last two or three years, the arbitral court in The Hague issued a kind of landmark ruling in 2016, which basically called into question China's claims. And this case was brought by the Philippines. But then President Duterte was elected in 2016 in the Philippines, and he kind of altered the equation. And rather than being one of the tougher states in ASEAN, looking at the South China Sea, he began to take a softer line toward China and courting Chinese investment, which kind of left Vietnam a little bit lonely as perhaps the frontline state with the most to lose and the biggest territorial concerns with regard to China. And that has caused some tension within ASEAN itself, which tries very hard and by its own constitution or long-standing practice, basically tries to reach consensus before it issues any statements at its annual summits and that sort of thing. It's striking to me that if you look at a map of the South China
0: Sea area, mm-hmm. that a lot of these islands in dispute really are a lot closer to any country but China. And China has to extend its maritime forces very far to get to some of them. They're a lot closer to Vietnam, Philippines, even Brunei and Malaysia. So, but I guess what you're saying is that when they look at the balance between economic investment, say through China's infrastructure bank, versus trying to dispute a claim over these islands, then maybe Mm -hmm. infrastructure or development wins out.
1: It's a very big issue. Sometimes I get a little frustrated at the debate because it's not always they want the investment and they have concerns about security. In some cases, like the Vietnamese case, for instance, they're very concerned about the terms of trade, where China might be importing natural resources and exporting manufactured goods to Vietnam that Vietnam wants to produce themselves. There's also environmental concerns and other issues. So the economic question is a little bit complicated, but certainly I think the general view is that There is stuff to be gained, infrastructure to be built, whether it's bridges, highways, ports, that China can help bring about. Now, so can Japan, and there's an interesting competition sort of developing and bidding for contracts that I think might be actually positive, and we've seen that in Indonesia in particular.
0: Let's stay in Vietnam for a few minutes. It's a very important country in the region, although it's a fascinating country for Americans, obviously, because of our experience in the Vietnam War. You just recently wrote a piece that's on the Brookings website about the visit of the United States aircraft carrier Carl Vinson to Vietnam. Talk about your experience with Vietnam and kind of where Vietnam
1: itself sits in this region. So Vietnam was not one of the original five ASEAN members, of course, when ASEAN was first created in 1967. It was during the Cold War, and there was a sort of anti-communist element to it. And Vietnam is, of course, led by a communist party. It's a socialist economic and political system. But it began reforming in the mid-'80s and started economic reform that had some similarities to what China had started a decade earlier, but has its own sort of elements as well. Since then, it's been very successful economically. Eventually, it joined ASEAN. And frankly speaking, it has a great sense of its geopolitical position. Its diplomats are extremely effective in promoting Vietnam's national interests. And so it's sort of in an interesting place. It really is the bridge country in many ways between China and Southeast Asia.
0: I recently sat down with John Vallant, a fellow in the Brown Center on Education Policy here at Brookings, to talk about his new research that examines the intersection of discrimination with disparities in school discipline. Here is a small part of the longer conversation, which will air in full in May. So John, tell me about the research now that you and some colleagues have done on
2: this question of discipline disparities and discrimination in schools. Sure. So one of the hardest questions in this area is the extent to which those gaps in suspension rates for students of color and white students are due to actual discriminatory treatment by schools. Because it might be that you know, there are a lot of social problems that will hit students well before they show up at school for the first day. So it might be that you see actual behavior differences by different groups, and schools are sort of responding proportionately and appropriately to what they see. So what we tried to do was look for the best evidence that we could find of whether schools treat black and white students differently for the same types of behaviors. And we have this sort of really rich, nice data set from Louisiana. And what we did is we looked at the ways that students were punished when they got into fights. And we looked at a very particular kind of fight, which was a fight between a black student and a white student, where the students had very similar discipline histories coming into it. So we have incidents that seem like students should get sort of the same punishment because you have a white student and a black student. They came into it looking very similar. And what we saw when we looked at those fights is that there is a difference. So black students are systematically suspended for longer than white students. The difference is not enormous. It's about one day for every 20 of those suspensions. So it's not a huge difference, but we do think it is reflective of some bias in the way that Louisiana schools were punishing black and white students for similar behaviors. So how
0: do you, as a researcher, study this when you're not actually there to observe these behaviors? You're just relying on the reports of the educators in Louisiana.
2: That's right, and we are only seeing a tiny, tiny part of what's going on in schools. So part of what makes this such a controversial issue and has made this so difficult for a lot of people to understand and talk about is that we as researchers and then policymakers out there can't really see how students are actually behaving. All we see is what shows up in student data. And you worry about that. And so one reason why you might worry about that is that we can't see what happens if maybe a white student and a black student both speak out in class And maybe when the white student spoke out, it didn't show up at all. It wasn't punished. It wasn't noted. The student was not sent to the principal's office, and the black student was. Well, that is essentially unobservable to us. So we are really limited in what it is that we can see. And so what we thought was we should look for what would be the clearest evidence of discrimination, even if it's possible that it's just sort of a tip of the iceberg of what is out there. And we thought that the most credible way of looking at that would be these interracial fights, where we at least know that we have a sort of equal terms fight, and we can see what happens starting from that sort of equal starting place. ¶¶
0: The paper is on our website. And now, back to Southeast Asia. When we talked earlier to discuss this interview, you mentioned an issue with the Mekong River, a very famous river in Vietnam. Can you talk about what that issue is?
1: Yes, and this also links very closely to our discussion just now about Vietnam as well. There's sort of two ways in which I think the region is feeling China's strength and growing influence. One is in the maritime sphere and the South China Sea, as we discussed, and the other is through its, some call it One Belt, One Road, or I think we call it now the Belt and Road Initiative, or BRI. And this is China's plan to sort of invest in infrastructure, help build a railway all the way from southern Yunnan province through Laos. Thailand, Malaysia, even into Indonesia, and pipelines through Myanmar, ports, and so on. But in the Mekong subregion, which is sometimes thought of as mainland Southeast Asia, which includes Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia, Thailand, and Myanmar, it is building hydropower dams along the Mekong. I think a total of 21 or so are planned. I think seven or so are built, mostly in the upper Mekong within China. And as you can imagine, while on the one hand, this power generation may be needed, it also gives China enormous leverage, especially for the downstream countries. And Vietnam would be at the end of the line there with the Mekong Delta in southern Vietnam. And so there's a great concern in the region about hoping and wanting to be able to work with China to make sure that there's environmental impact assessments and pre-planning and notification for upriver dam building and that this is done in as consensual a way as possible. I mean, you can imagine, for instance, if Vietnam is in a mood, say, to take a stronger position on the South China Sea, but perhaps over time, China might have the ability and the lever to turn off the water for the Mekong Delta. That's an oversimplification. But it obviously would give the authorities in Hanoi some pause about positions they might take in the security realm because they might be feeling a little vulnerable in the economic and infrastructure realm.
0: Let's stay with Vietnam, but switch a little bit to the security issues in Southeast Asia. I mean, something I learned way back in college was that this whole area, this whole region is where a lot of the world shipping goes through. The U.S. Navy has for a long time had one of its major missions is to keep the sea lanes of communication open in the area And then as the visit of the USS Carl Vinson, the U.S. aircraft carrier to Vietnam, very recently shows, the U.S. has a lot of security interests in the region, and Vietnam seems to be kind of central to those. Can you talk about
1: Vietnam's security relationship with the United States? Yeah. I mean, I would say first broadly and then getting to the U.S. relationship in particular, Vietnam is really, in my view, kind of the epicenter of new dynamics of regional security that began evolving or at least gaining steam, I think, during the Obama administration, and now we're seeing it sort of gain more steam today. And by that, I mean, you know, one element of what we call the rebalance policy during the Obama administration was to support kind of inclusive security networks or like-minded networks of allies and emerging partners and so on. Today, I think, as there is common concern among some countries about China's actions in the South China Sea, you see, for instance, a number of countries giving kind of maritime capacity-building support of one kind or another to Vietnam and its Coast Guard or Navy and so on. The US recently delivered a Hamilton-class cutter, which is a big ship for Vietnam. Others are providing kind of maritime domain awareness, sort of radar support. So whether it's Japan or India or Australia, you see a kind of common support and perhaps a greater level of coordination. Of course, the Vietnamese, I think, are very deft at facilitating and cultivating this. So it's sort of there's a push and pull and a kind of, I think, organic way in which this is developing. I sometimes see Vietnamese foreign policy as trying to balance China through greater relationships with other countries, but going just far enough without provoking China because China will always be there Ultimately, they need a stable relationship with China. So you
0: mentioned the Obama administration's rebalance. Some people have called it the pivot to Asia policy that we heard about. Mm -hmm. Now we're hearing the Trump administration in its State Department, especially, is talking about the Indo-Pacific region. We've mentioned India a couple of times here. Can you talk about the points of continuity, but also the points of change with respect to U.S. policy in Southeast Asia from the Obama administration to the Trump administration?
1: Yeah. I mean, Southeast Asia in the sort of eyes of U.S. foreign policy toward Asia has always, I think, kind of been part of a larger strategic kind of footprint or strategy. So sometimes there's a sense that Southeast Asia isn't taken as seriously in its own right as some Southeast Asian countries would like to see. But we saw, I think, a marked change particularly during the Obama administration, where there was the launching, initially was called informally the pivot, eventually it became the rebalance policy. And generally it was focused on modernizing treaty alliances in the region, expanding bilateral relations with emerging partners, many of which were in Southeast Asia, like Vietnam, Indonesia, Singapore, which there was already a longstanding relationship with, and further afield as well, India. And their critical aspect was supporting Myanmar's kind of opening and democratic transition. It also focused on supporting the institutional architecture in the region, and that means ASEAN, or what is sometimes called ASEAN centrality. And, of course, it meant supporting U.S. engagement through the Trans-Pacific Partnership, or the TPP. One other interesting aspect of it that we touched on before was encouraging inclusive security networks among like-minded countries, like I mentioned. So now we have the sort of free and open Indo-Pacific policy. And I think the National Security Council and the State Department are working hard now to flesh this out. We've gotten you know some glimmers of it so far. And there are, in fact, many similarities, I think, with the previous rebalance policy. The Trump administration is talking about continuing to support ASEAN as a sort of fulcrum of regional integration, continued support for a rules-based maritime order, freedom of navigation and overflight exercises on the navigation side. Those are called FONOPS and often reported in the news. But I think a big difference that is really going to be challenging going forward is the abrupt withdrawal from TPP during the first week of the Trump administration. Now there's a greater emphasis on bilateral trade deals, fair and reciprocal trade, and there's also an emphasis on characterizing China as a strategic competitor. So late last year, the national security strategy came out, for instance, and branded China a strategic competitor. And also the defense security strategy really talked about China trying to achieve regional hegemony with the goal of displacing the United States, if I read that correctly. And so I think while it's a work in progress, it has greater emphasis on India and bringing India in as a regional power, I think that the lack of overarching strategy for economic engagement One that would be attractive, say, to Southeast Asia, has left the region kind of at a loss. And I think the key thing to think about here like, I was in the region for about a month in November, and one of the points of feedback that I heard most commonly was don't make us choose between China and the United States. And when you have a situation where China is rising and its economic influence is rising so quickly, And suddenly the U.S. has pulled the rug out of a kind of broad trade engagement which had strategic elements where the U.S. could help to write the rules of the road for trade and commerce in concert with our partners in TPP, for instance. And you have a situation like that, and then the U.S. is making statements about sort of China's rise as a regional hegemon. These are all issues worth discussing. But it does leave, I think, Southeast Asian countries in a position where they feel they might be forced to choose. And we probably want to be a little bit careful about putting that question to them. Right. Did they feel then during the Obama administration that maybe the
0: US was expressing, especially through TPP negotiations, but also security measures, more of a commitment to their region than maybe the Trump administration has
1: so far? I would say the Obama-era rebalance policy probably gave more focus to Southeast Asia than we had seen in a very, very long time. And there was even kind of talk of a pivot within a pivot that gave more focus on the rebalance policy. I mean, there is almost a regional tendency to always think the U.S. isn't paying as much attention as it claims it will. But I thought of the rebalance policy as setting a very high bar And as a policymaker for a period of time in the policy planning staff at the State Department, I felt it always made us try to reach higher in terms of engagement in Southeast Asia. So we have to sort of see as the Indo-Pacific policy continues to be fleshed out, and I think we see a high level of diplomatic engagement, continued security engagement, particularly on the maritime front, bringing in India and so on. ASEAN just wants to make sure that they're not crowded out that they're not sort of hyphen, in a sense, between the two sides of this broader region that's being described.
0: Jonathan, looking ahead then, what kind of additional research will you be doing to help visitors to the Brookings website, to help policymakers, to help listeners of this
1: podcast understand and think about issues in Southeast Asia? Well, we have different plans. Personally, I'm working, as we often do here at Brookings, on a book that is looking at China-Southeast Asia relations as they've been evolving in the last few years and where they may go in the future, and then what are the policy implications for both U.S. policy towards Southeast Asia in general, but perhaps the U.S.-China relationship in particular. We're also looking to kind of expand our social media engagement and hopefully do some podcasts like this with experts from the region and ask them about the breaking issues, whether it's the Mekong, the Rohingya issue in Myanmar and Bangladesh, and a broad set of other issues as well, including elections coming up in Indonesia, for instance. So we're looking to expand and do more and engage with top think tanks in the region through that process.
0: Well, I invite you to come back on the show and continue this conversation to illuminate the issues in Southeast Asia. It's a fascinating region, and we want to learn more about it. So, Jonathan, thank you for sharing your time and expertise today. It's really my pleasure. Thank you for having me. You can learn more about Jonathan Stromseth and his research on our website, brookings.edu. Finally today, Senior Fellow David Wessel, Director of the Hutchins Center on Fiscal and Monetary Policy at Brookings, Offer some cogent thoughts on federal deficits and the debt, and how to make sense of the debates around these issues.
3: I'm David Wessel, and this is my Economic Update. I'll bet you're going to be hearing a lot more about the federal deficit and debt in the weeks and months ahead. Some of what you're going to hear is accurate, some is misleading, some is downright sophistry. I've been paying attention to the federal budget since I joined the Washington Bureau of the Wall Street Journal in 1987, the era of the Reagan deficits. So I'd like to spend the next couple of minutes putting the current deficit talk in perspective. Point 1. Ignore anyone who tells you flatly that budget deficits are always good or always bad. It depends. When the economy tumbles into a deep recession, as it did in 2007, when consumer and business demand evaporates, the government should increase spending or cut taxes to cushion the blow. George Bush did that modestly in 2008. Barack Obama did it aggressively in 2009. But today is different. In many important respects, the economy is booming. Unemployment is at a 17-year low. It doesn't need the oomph of increased spending, tax cuts, and bigger budget deficits, yet that is just what Donald Trump and Congress have delivered. The deficit, the difference between what the government takes in and what it spends, was $665 billion last year. It's now projected to exceed $1 trillion next year and every year beyond. Point two, pay attention to the debt, the amount the government has borrowed to cover deficits past and present. Measured against the size of the economy, which is a useful yardstick when looking over time, the federal debt was about 35% of GDP before the Great Recession. It's over 75% today. And based on current tax and spending laws, it's headed to 101% of GDP by 2028. That's a lot of debt. The only time we've been near this level was immediately after World War II. Now, I don't see any sign of an imminent crisis, but there's reason to worry. As interest rates rise, the government's interest tab will rise, and at some point, that'll crowd out spending on other things. And at some point, I don't know when, but at some point, the rest of the world will not be willing to lend us lots and lots of money at incredibly low interest rates. Interest rates will go up. Moreover, the rising debt limits the government's maneuvering room to borrow if it needs to in a crisis, whether another recession or a war. Now, we don't need to pay off the debt any more than a big corporation ever has to pay off all its debts. But we do need to prevent the debt burden from growing faster than the economy. And that requires a combination of three things. Faster economic growth, spending restraint, and higher taxes. Which brings me to point three. The problem here is that today's tax code will not produce enough revenues to pay for the spending that Americans want. We're not going to fix this by cutting spending alone. Americans simply aren't willing to eviscerate Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, veterans' pensions, and so on though some spending cuts are necessary. And we're not going to fix this by raising taxes alone either. Americans won't tolerate the size of the tax increases that it take. So looking at this both economically and politically, it's going to take a combination of tax increases and spending cuts. Anyone who predicts otherwise will, I'm certain, be proven wrong. But let's be clear about one thing. The debt was unsustainable before the recent tax cuts. The tax cuts made things worse. Yes, they'll probably help the economy grow faster over time, but no sober analyst thinks they'll pay for themselves. A little perspective. Tax revenues this year will amount to about 16% of GDP. That's lower than at any time in the past 50 years, except for the aftermath of the last couple of recessions. Yet we are an aging society, which means more retirees collecting government retirement and health care benefits. So to pay for that, tax revenues as a share of GDP are inevitably going to rise from today's levels. That's not a political point. It's an economic reality. Now, dealing with the debt and deficits aren't high on the political agenda in Washington these days. I haven't noticed any large demonstrations on the mall with people demanding fiscal responsibility. There does seem to be more hollow rhetoric, though, and there are some arguments being made by people who should know better that seem aimed more at justifying recent tax and spending legislation than illuminating the economic choices we face. So listen and read skeptically. And if you wanna try putting the budget on a sustainable course yourself, play our Fiscal Ship computer game at www.fiscalship.org.
0: My thanks to audio engineer and producer Gaston Rebereto, with assistance from Mark Holscher, to producers Brennan Hoban and Chris McKenna, to Bill Finan, who does the book interviews, and to Jessica Pavone, Eric Abelagin, and Rebecca Weiser for design and web support. Thanks also to our intern, Stephen Lee. And finally, thanks to Camila Ramirez and David Nassar for their guidance and support. The Brookings Cafeteria is brought to you by the Brookings Podcast Network, where you can also subscribe to Intersections, 5 on 45, and our events podcasts. Email your questions and comments to me at bcp at brookings.edu. If you have a question for a scholar, include an audio file and I'll play it and the answer on the air. Follow us on Twitter at Policy Podcasts. You can subscribe to the Brookings Cafeteria on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get podcasts and listen to it in all the usual places. If you go to Apple Podcasts, please rate and review the show. Visit us online at brookings.edu. Until next time, I'm Fred Dews.